Hello boys and girls, sports fans in assorted waves and strays, it's Den here from Diginomica. And earlier in the month, I had an interview with Alex Schutman. He is CEO of Workfront. And prior to that, over the Christmas holiday period, I'd read his book called Done Right. And I read a, a fairly substantial review around it. Now, the book was great, but it left me with plenty of questions. And in the conversation that I was able to have with um, Alex, we pick it up from the beginning. The starting point was the the bit that um, that intrigued me because you 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 um, uh, you compared, or rather, you pulled together Branson, Har, and Buffett coming from three very very different angles and saying that yeah, each of them has. Um, they've obviously been successful. Each of them has a point, but from where you're sitting, real success comes from taking that trifecta of customer, employee, and um, stakeholder in, in, mm-hmm. into one into one concept. But what I didn't get was mm-hmm. why. Why would that be any more successful than the individual approaches that that you highlighted there? Why do you think that's the case? You know, specifically what I was talking about, it is not necessarily, first of all, those three folks are very successful and so far be it for sure. me to, to say that any of them were wrong. Um, you know, what, what I was talking about is in the context of doing work, right? So, so you're, you're initiating some sort of initiative, some sort of project or program. Mm. Um, and uh, if you don't, uh, if, if you don't consider the needs of all three of those, you can put yourself off too much in one direction. So you could, as an example, um, uh, be doing a piece of work that's just maniacally customer focused, um, but you could put a uh, an incurable burden on the team that's trying to execute. Um, so that they, so that there's no possible way that they could be successful, even though, um, you know, your point of view would be, um, uh, fine and great and even admirable. Your point of view in terms of serving the customer could be admirable. Uh, but if you don't take into account your employees, then you won't be able to have a successful program. So when I put the three of them together, um, my view is each organization leans into one of these three naturally. Right. You know, so it's not really a point of, of a perfect balance. The point is that in the work planning process, uh, you take all three into consideration. And, and the way that that's been effective for me in the past, Dennis, is by just using this really simple technique of let's just ask ourselves how are employees see us today and how we'd want them to see us in in three to four years and the same thing with shareholders and and customers and that that at least gives you what you think their point of view is so that you can once again uh, use it as input in the in the work planning process if you go back you and i have almost uh, the same length career in it right so if i were to, to reflect it back to maybe some of the early days of it would be um I could deliver sub-second response time, which would which would serve a customer, but it might cost me so darn much in terms of the amount of kit that I've got to buy that that I'll I'll never do it. Right, right. I understand that. Now, 
Are you making an assumption when you're putting forward this idea that there is a relatively stable situation here? Because the different attitudes, different stakeholders, whether that's employees, uh, shareholders, or, or customers, changes depending on a whole variety of circumstances. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the the common one that I tend to think about is, you know, the, the tyranny of the quarterly report. You know, mm-hmm. and you know the the company for whatever reason doesn't perform as the financial analysts expected. The stock price tanks, the board goes nuts, and guess what? The CEO. Mm-hmm. CEO's out on his ear or is very close to being out on his ear and all manner of tensions arise as a result of that. Mm-hmm. But in, in that, changes, that changes dynamics left and right, of course. So are you assuming a level of stability or are you assuming or theorising, maybe put it, th- maybe theorising, that this can work in all circumstances? What, what's, what's your position there? Well, first of all, there's a view of a company, right? Um, and... But if I if I step away from the view of a company for a second, and, and maybe let's let's step back from using the word shareholder for just a second, and and talk about okay, I've got a major initiative. Uh, uh, one of our customers just went through completely reengineering um, their IP licensing process. So so this customer um, has a tremendous IP library because they're a digital entertainment company and they've got 2000 vendors around the world that would like to make a, as an example, a bunch, a lunch box, a lunch pail with a logo that they, a uh, piece of IP that they own. So they just went through and completely redesigned that. So let's say, let's say you've got an initiative that's very, very large like that. I think there are three basic questions. The three basic questions are, Who's going to pay for this work? Consider that the shareholder. Mm-hmm. Um, who's going to actually do the work? And who is going to be the beneficiary of the work? And so, you know, my contention is uh, when you get ready to plan any work that you're going to do, you need to at least ask yourself those three questions and and kind of have a knowledge of, okay, the person that's going to pay for this, what is it that they want? The people that have to do the work, what would they really like uh, when they're doing the work? And the person that's going to be, be the beneficiary of the work, uh, what would uh, what would they like? What would they like? Now, if you take it up to a company level, no, I don't. I don't believe that uh, any company is necessarily uh, stable forever. Let's just take a. Uh, we just take something like a pharmaceutical company, and 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 let's say that they had a drug recall, uh, and because a drug was killing people. Mm-hmm. Well, at that moment, you throw every sense of shareholder value out the window, and you probably don't care how much money you're spending at all, because you're trying to make sure that the product that you have uh, is 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 not killing somebody. So I don't think, I do not think companies are stable uh, at all in terms of the priority that they lean to um, any of these three. I think that could change based upon leadership that comes in. I think it could change based upon circumstances. But then in summary, Dennis, I think if you take it down to planning for an initiative or planning for work, I do think you have to ask yourself those three questions. Who's paying for this thing? Mm. Who's doing it? And who's the beneficiary? Mm. Okay. Okay. You you talked at length about tackling change, and that's mm-hmm. been a that's been a, a topic of interest to me for many 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 years. Having been through mm-hmm. 
uh, a number of iterations in, in my own life. One of the things that you talk about is directing the rider. What looks like resistance is often a lack of clarity, so provide crystal, crystal clear direction. A few weeks ago, I spoke with uh, Jim Schnaber, who's uh, now uh, chairman of Siemens and um, Willem Ersk. And he was at one stage co-CEO of SAP, and that's how I got to know him. And he, has, he together with um, a, a, a sporting person, has written a book called Deta- uh, Dreams and Details. And in, in that book, basically what he says is, is, is something like this and as it relates to this. And it, I think there's some parallels here. He says, you know, the, the idea that we can sit around as members of a board and sit around and look at KPIs and measure everybody on those things doesn't make much sense in the kind of world that we're living in today. If we want to have people who are going to be, in some senses, creative in some senses, bringing ideas to the table. We have to set them free. But at the same time, we have to give them uh, guardrails. But you can only do that if you, if you express what it is that you're talking about in incredibly clear and simple terms. That sounds very, very similar to what you're saying. Is it, would, would that, you're, I take it you're, you're going to agree with that, yeah? I didn't talk about this much in the book, but you know, one of the things that I've always believed in, which is uh, weird, if you think about it, is, th- is that boundaries create freedom. Right. Many years ago, there was a study uh, where they had two identical playgrounds uh, that school-age kids were playing in. And one, in, one, in both playgrounds, there was a flagpole right in the middle. And in one playground, uh, there was no fence. And in another playground, there was a fence and in the playground where there was no fence, the kids just played right around the flagpole and in the playground where there was a fence, they played all over the yard. Um, And that notion is, you know, when we go talk about the notion of commander's intent that my friend Mark McGinnis uh, taught me, it's, it's this notion of exceptional clarity on uh, what you want the end point to look like. Um, And then a very clear definition of the boundaries in which you can operate. Um, And so I think that the the dreams and details and the way that you described it, I think that's that's very akin to the notion of of commander's intent, you know, that I learned from uh, Commander Mark McGinnis, who's with Navy SEALs, of just be clear on the boundaries and be clear on the outcome and then set your people free. Yeah, that, that particular gentleman's story I found absolutely fascinating if for no other reason than they, he, he's describing circumstances where, you know, you try to plan for various outcomes and one thing and another, but you could totally fail, absolutely fail, but you have to be prepared for that as well. And uh, I, I, I was really fascinated by, by the insights that you were able to bring um, from, from him. What else did he say that didn't get into the book? That's, those, those are the kind of things that always fascinate me as well. <laughs> Well, you know, um, gosh, Mark's 20 plus years in the Navy SEALs and um, he does things, keep things close to his vest because uh, he's supposed to because things are confidential. Sure. But, you know, one of the things that I just think those those folks are pretty amazing. They're probably the, in my mind, the greatest athletes on the planet. You know, one of the one of the most important tests that they give this i didn't learn this from mark i learned this from my own research one of the most important tests that they give is a personality test because if you think about it these folks have almost unlimited funds 
um, and the unfortunate ability to start a war. And so they have to be pretty ethically grounded, uh, um, if you will. But one of the things he did share with me, you know, I don't, there's this whole notion of embrace the suck, right? Which is, which is this notion of, of, okay, you're with your team uh, and you're the leader of the team and things are going really bad. Um, And if people start talking about how bad they're going, um, it becomes contagious. And so you have to have this notion of even when it's really bad, you, you just have to, you, you can, you can name that it's bad, but you know, you have to, you have to get on with it. Yeah. And Mark told me this at one point in our interactions. I said, well, like, what does embrace the suck look like, uh, Mark, to you? He goes, well, imagine, if you will, that um, you're trying to uh, observe the enemy. And in observing the enemy, it's you and one other guy, and you can't move for two days. Well, at a certain point in time, he's probably going to go to the bathroom and it's probably going to run over onto your side of the dirt. Alex, that's what I mean by embrace the suck. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that hasn't happened to me at work yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, just, as, just as a little aside here, uh, uh, very, very early on in the days of creating this uh, little media thing that we've got going here, um, I said, you know, our number one job has got to be to suck less every day, right? Uh, <laughs> and... and uh, and they kind of looked at me and said, are you kidding me or what? I said, no, 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 no. I said, there's an awful lot of sucky media out there. If we can suck less, then we're winning. That's it. <laughs> and, I, and, and I still do that every day. It's like I get in, the lot, in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Absolutely. You know, I get, I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and think, dude, you've got to suck less today <laughs> and see yeah. how that goes. And some days you win and obviously some days you, you don't, but... Uh, um, it's kind of become something that I occasionally put out there, and people have a good giggle about it. It's good; it helps keep it helps me keep now, on the, on the, grounded, really. <laughs> on the notion of the elephant and the rider, you know what that was really about. And I learned I was fortunate that Chip Heath, who wrote um, a switch and made to stick, he was an advisor uh, at uh, Eloqua mm-hmm. where I worked, and so that notion came from Chip. But what that notion is really about is you know, if you're going to lead any kind of initiative or, or, or manage any kind of modern work, you've got to understand that if all you do is appeal to the rational uh, person, the rational part of, of uh, people, you're not going to be successful. Um, you have to understand that there's great emotion when you're doing uh, this kind of work. Um, and that, uh, you know, the work that we do, c- customers are changing the way that they work. I was on the phone with one of the largest cosmetic companies on the planet this morning. Um, and, you know, we have successfully worked with each other to configure our technology to improve the speed of their creative operations. And what we're both really faced with right now is the emotional adoption um, in the organization. And so that's really the notion of the elephant and the rider is if you're going to lead modern work, it, you have to plan uh, to appeal to both the emotional side of our of ourselves and the logical side of ourselves. It's it's. It, this is this is almost uncanny because as, uh, before you started talking about this, I was looking back at my notes on this, and um, I quoted you as saying, "Never assume that what's clear to one person is clear to someone else in the same way. If someone doesn't get it, it's on you." And uh, yeah. I, I know exactly what that means because 
you know, we're in the middle of a project at the moment, and there are a lot of technical steps to be taken, and some of them are fairly obvious, and you know, you can skip over those, but others are not so obvious, and the mm-hmm. rationale behind them may be incredibly clear to me, but you know, if one guy doesn't get it, I'm going to get all sorts of questions, and I have to stop myself saying. Crikey, why doesn't he get it? You know, these are dumb. Uh, hang on a second. I haven't communicated this correctly in some way or other. So that was a great learning for me. Um, I'll give you an example internally for us, Dennis. Uh, one of our larger customers is Google. Uh, early on, uh, a few of us came to understand that by we, you know, by serving Google, uh, parts of our infrastructure were going to profoundly uh, change. Uh, because of the way that they wanted to use our product now, and because you're technical, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of a detail for a second. You know, the way that we used to think about our API um, is that uh, customers would want to take um, some small amounts of information out of our application and put it in another uh, application. This was, you know, probably four or five years ago how we thought about our API, mm-hmm. and then we became to understand that actually customers were wanting to use our application more as a as a centerpiece between various different applications. And so we were going to have to ingest information. Um, and Google, because of the way that they work, uh, want to ingest profound amounts of information into our application. And what we came to understand is that some of our engineers were very frustrated by the work that they were having to do on behalf of Google. And what me and the CTO had never done is set the engineering team down and say, look, um, we're going to serve very large enterprises in the future, and Google is going to change our architecture. Um, and that's a good thing because it's going to allow us to be successful in the future. And then as soon as we did that, then everybody was super excited to you know, to work on the API, but we just hadn't, we hadn't emotionally engaged the team on a really hard project. Right. I can imagine. Did that get, I assume that got fixed fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, and, and what was so cool back to what you said, when you talked about dreams and details, what was so cool is something, there were three parts of our infrastructure that have been intractable problems for us for eight years. Mm-hmm. Like, like, where we would say to ourselves, we don't have the science to fix this. Mm. Um, And in four months last year, uh, a group of less than six amazing engineers came up with ways to solve all three of those problems. And we had, in some parts, we had 40 and 50 times uh, performance improvement uh, in uh, in our infrastructure. And it went back to your, your discussion on, on uh, dreams and details. When, when we emotionally engage them and we're really clear on the outcome, the outcome is we want to serve a customer like Google at scale with Google performance. Mm-hmm. Then they're like, and you guys have freedom. What are the, what resources do you need? Uh, it was, they, they had a real breakthrough. It was really cool to see. Yeah. That's that sort of thing is always, um, very enjoyable to to watch, isn't it? I, I've seen that before. And they, and they yeah. did it. Yeah. yeah. You know, this, this gets back to one of my central notions. Like, for the rest of their lives, they can be proud of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just moving on, moving on a little mm-hmm. bit with this, with this one. The value, having work that has value and meaning, a lot of talk about that at this point in time, mm-hmm. given, you know, so many other things that have been going on, and particularly... Um, 
some of the economic issues that have <coughs> impacted people is uh, ongoing. <coughs> How important now is that business of having a sense of ownership, having a sense of achievement? Is, is that more important these days, would you say? Or has it always been there, but we just never recognized it? Look, here's my basic belief is that uh, since the beginning of time, pride in the work is the greatest motivator. Um, you know, I talked uh, in the book, I, I referenced a guy named John Katzenbach, who wrote a book uh, called Why Pride Matters More Than Money. And I actually got to know John personally on a project that um, he was a senior executive at McKinsey. And uh, I was fortunate to have to be able to work with him on a, on a project. And and I asked him, why did you start um, – why did you write that book, John? And he said, actually, uh, Alex, it came from a, uh, some work that we were doing on behalf of GM where they were – they had hired us to study profitability of different plants. And we found there's this one – I may get it wrong. I think it was a Buick engine plant. Uh, Buick's an American brand. Sure. Uh, a Buick uh, engine plant. That was very, very profitable. And we went to visit them and we sat down with the, and it was interesting because both the plant manager and the union foreman met with us together, which was unique. And we said, well, why, why are you more profitable than anybody else? And they said, it's family day. Um, and he said, no, no, um, you misunderstood my question. Why are you more profitable than anybody else? He goes, yeah, we, we, we do family day a lot here at the plant. You got to help me understand that. And they said, well, first of all, one of the biggest costs of a plant uh, is um, is injury time, right? And so when we do family day a lot, you know, we keep the plant clean and keeping the plant clean and uncluttered really helps with uh, with injury time. But also imagine, if you will, uh, some uh, somebody brings in his or her daughter into the plant and, you know, shows them their workstation. They don't say to their daughter, this is the place where I spend endless hours dreary and hating my job. They say, do, do you see this piece of machinery here? You have to be very well trained, honey, to use this piece of machinery. And, and, and I'm one of those people that uses this piece of uh, machinery. And, and this piece of machinery creates this piston rod. And let me tell you what this piston rod does in this engine. And John told me that story and, and that's what it caused him to embark upon this book. And, and I worked with John in 1999, uh, 1999-2000. And all I've seen in the last 20 years, Dennis, is that his point has been proven to me over and over again, is it's pride in the work. It's looking down at the thing that you created with your hands and saying, this is good. Yeah. And now, different values mean thing, different things to people over time. So maybe my generation was more materialistic, and maybe generations now uh, are more service-oriented. Uh, uh, and those things, I think, will change as generations change. But I think what's unmovable is, is the intrinsic motivation that comes from being proud of what you've done. Yeah, I can, I can, I can identify with that. Um, my father was a, um, a a toolmaker. He was the guy who made the tools that made the cars, right? Mm -hmm. And when robots came along in the in the eighties, that was it. His his job was done, and he was done. He was out. But he was mm -hmm. able to move on to a company that made um, 
Microwave filters for satellites. Don't ask me what they are. <laughs> There's something to do with the n- navigation, but they're they're a piece of precision copper that basically has a bunch of holes in it, and it's about mm-hmm. the size of a small ke- a small Mac keyboard. And uh, I remember he took me into his shop once, and he said, "Hey, this is what I do these days." And it was all done with micrometers, and, and I, I'm sure it would be done by machines today. But it was mm-hmm. absolutely clear to me that the fact that he was able to do that. And for that part to be um, accepted by uh, a space agency, go into a satellite and be running around the Earth, clearly meant a huge amount to him. And I just looked at it thinking, I've got no damned idea what I'm looking at here, but I sure as heck can see someone who is enjoying what they're doing, you know? Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's... It's a, so then if, you think about, then if you think about managing modern work, so I, I think one of the drains on productivity today... Uh, Dennis, if you think about the work in in a company where the majority of it is not, there's not a physical output. Mm. Um, and for the majority of people, they're part of a value chain in the work uh, happening. So let's say you're a, a, a financial analyst. I'm not picking on a financial analyst. But let's say you're a financial analyst for a product group, right? And so you're part of the value chain. So how do you look down at your work and see that it's good? And so if, if we want that kind of pride, which creates extraordinary outcomes, then what we have to be really good at doing is explaining to people uh, what their role is and explaining to people why their role matters. And so if, if you can't, if you're leading work and you don't do those two things well, you're not going to get an extraordinary outcome. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the, you know, when we think about managing modern work, that's one of the things that we learned from the, the customers that we interviewed is the people that really got stuff done, they spent the time to explain why this work was going to happen. They took the time to understand the, constitu- the constituents, who's paying for it, who's doing it, who's the beneficiary. And then they took the time with their team to explain to each team member what their role was and why their role mattered. That leads me neatly on to the business of measurement because you've get, you came mm-hmm. up with five uh, metric types mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that I, I, I love them because you know, they're not Taylor-esque. <laughs> I, I think Taylor's got a great deal to answer for, but that's perhaps another uh, another discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and you also say that these are these are evolving uh, measures because mm-hmm. they're not traditional. They don't necessarily have a a hard number that a financial accountant would understand for instance um mm-hmm. how's that working out because obviously the, the book was written at a point in time and i mm-hmm. presume you're thinking on those is evolving uh yeah well actually what we've what we've got is we've got some customers that are experimenting with them and so we've got a customer that is a medical device manufacturer and so they decided to bite off mix uh the, the very first one mm-hmm. right um and uh, and it was a team that uh, it's a marketing team. It's a, it was actually it's a marketing organization. So it's a marketing organization, and and they are an internal. You know, they they serve the business. So the business comes to them and asks them to do things, and they and they do those things and and deliver it. And once they got this concept of mixed down, they baselined their organization. And after 18 months, they were able to go back to the senior executive team uh, and say, uh, 
Uh, right. When we started, uh, 73% of the work that we did were internal projects that were not connected to even any revenue generation. Um, and we've been able to now move that to 66% of our work uh, that we're doing now is uh, revenue generating uh, versus internal. And then the executive team said, well, holy cow, uh, like what do we have to do to make it so that even more of your work is uh, is revenue generating? And so that's, that's led to a, a whole different engagement process between the business and the marketing team because they were able to and it's no different, really. Um, you've spent a lot of time around IT, Dennis. It's no different than the perpetual pain that a CIO has on run versus change mm. uh, work in the organization. So think of mix akin to what a CIO deals with in run versus change. And when I meet with senior executives and I go through the five metrics in that in the work performance index, none of them even have the first one. And when you take a step back and say, and say, how meaningful would it be for you if you just knew the you know the knowledge work that's going on in your organization? How much of that is going towards? So you've got strategies. Do you even know if you've got effort going towards those towards those strategies? And how much effort do you have going towards those new strategies versus you know running the work? And they've got rudimentary ways of of measuring that by headcount and stuff like that, but not mm-hmm. not the actual work that's happening. I don't know if you can go a little bit deeper on that one. You said sort of 73% was internal, mm-hmm. um, non-revenue generating, flip the switch, 66%, two-thirds revenue generating. Mm-hmm. What actually happened? What, did the, what was it that they discovered that allowed them to develop, presumably, strategies that, that could flip that, flip that particular equation? Well, but they started being able to once once they started uh, saying that they were going to measure those things, mm-hmm. right? So the first the first piece was uh, we're actually going to tag work, right? And we're going to understand whether the work is uh, internal work or external work. Then once they started measuring it, they were able to go back into the lines of business and say, "Look, we are uh, we're a cost center, right?" Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and they don't have a formal chargeback, but they were able to go back to more senior executives in the organization and say, we're a cost center. Um, let me show you what your team is asking us to do. Is this how you want your team uh, behaving? And those, of course, those senior executives said, no, it's not at all. And, and, but just the visibility of it allowed people to say, I probably should make a different decision. Right. So it wasn't that they, it wasn't that, it wasn't that people were, you know, you know the the notion of the. It's almost like, do uh, you know the notion of the tragedy of the commons? Yeah, oh yes, right. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, in a situation where you don't have the the visibility, and you've got an organization like that that's a shared services organization internally, you have the tragedy of the commons, right? And so people are incented to consume as much of the organization as they can. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily incented, but 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 they do. So I, I equate that almost in a weird sort of way to tragedy of the commons versus people operating with economic self-interest. Are you able to apply each of these metric types in in your own business? Does that work for you? Uh, well, what we're actually going through in our own business um, right now is. Um, 
because we said, look, we're going to advocate for this way of, of managing modern work is we built a course. We actually co- we collaborated with the University of Utah and we built a course based upon the book and our entire company is going through that course. Um, and then we're actually going to reinstall Workfront across the entire company, you know, using the disciplines that were in the book. Because remember, the disciplines in the book came from interviewing 30, 40 customers and people from outside and kind of coalescing those uh, coalescing those together. So, that, so we're in process of that right now. We actually will baseline the five WPIs and we'll report on that and report uh, progress on that. So that will be part of, uh, of this program. So the important thing from my standpoint is, is that you're not just saying it, you're going to eat your own dog food so that others can see how that tastes. Yeah. 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 And we, uh, we, uh, we hired a, a very senior executive, um, a uh, gentleman named Mike Kilbane, and he he did this for a five billion dollar, you know, Fortune 100 public company. He ran all of their project and portfolio management around the world, and uh, and he's come in and he's the he's the program manager. Wow. Okay. But we we figure like like you're exactly right, and what it was is there was actually a lot of energy inside the company that kind of took us because to, we use our product. Obviously, we use our product internally. But there was a lot of energy in the company that said, you know what, if we're going to go out, so it wasn't really a necessarily just tops down, but it was, look, if we're going to go out and tell the world that there's a better way to do something, we better be the best at the better way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the very, few, one of the few ways that I know that you can be credible in this, uh, uh, especially, totally. as a, as, as, especially as a tech vendor. I mean, if you're not eating your own, oh, food, for then sure. what are you doing? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But equally, to, at the end here, I, I suggested that regardless of, of, of the playbook that you have here, and I mean, I get it, um, there can't be any, I don't see any way that there are easy shortcuts or, or quick fixes to establishing this because you are asking people to flip many switches, I suggest, and there are only so many that people can handle at a, at a point in time. So I'm, I've made the assumption that you can therefore take the lessons and apply them in an incremental manner. Um, now, yeah. I don't know whether that presumption is correct or not. It's, uh, it's one of the open questions, I suppose, that I've got at the end of the day. But, uh, I mean, how do you see it yourself, you, Alan? You can. Um, I'll give you an example. We go through a pretty rigorous goal-setting and goal-tracking process internally as a company. Um, and uh, actually, what, what, what actually kicked off the work inside of our company to say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to all read this book and we're going to essentially re-implement Workfront. What kicked that off was several months ago in an executive meeting, one of the executives in the company stood up and said, you know, we're really not as good as this kind of, uh, we're not as good at achieving our goals as we want to be. And, and this is a problem. So the reason why we hired Mike Cobain, he was actually a consultant. So I went to Mike and I said, Mike, I need you to interview a bunch of people internally and find out, like, why are we not executing? What's going on? And my hypothesis going in, Dennis, and I was wrong, my hypothesis going in was that we had asked people to do, do too many things. And so, you know, people were thrashing and, uh, and we weren't prioritizing very well. And so that was my hypothesis. And, and Mike came back and he said, actually, this is going to be ironic when I tell you this, but when when, because you do accomplish things. So when you accomplish things, you do the basics really well. 
And when you don't accomplish things, you don't do the basics very well. And we went and unpacked some pretty significant initiatives that that just kind of languished. And what we realized, Dennis, is that the first couple things that I that that you and I talked about that are the first, you know, kind of two or three chapters in the book, the why, you know, the who are the constituents, we didn't do those things very well. So when I when I meet with customers and if, if they've read the book and kind of talking about everything and Alex, like what's the most important thing? Like you've got to you've got to be able to articulate why you're doing this and you've got to know these three constituents and and what they're going what they're getting out of it. And so that's my answer, Dennis, is um, at least at least read the first two, you know, the first two chapters and and do those practices and you'll dramatically improve your execution. Yeah, that was one thing I really liked about the book. And it, it wasn't just telling me that there's here's a recipe. It was saying, by the way, here, here's the worksheets that go with it, which is yeah. always useful. Now, look, if if there was one thing that you had to change or that you had to really add to the book that you think, dang, it, it, yeah. I could really, what would that be? I think that, you know, we, in the book, we talk a lot about the execution of work, but it really, I think it really comes back to the point that you were making, Dennis, is to get people to execute this way, there is some change management. Sure. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of, because I talked to all these customers, there's a lot of examples of how the customers did the change management. Let me give you an example. Uh, Lincoln Financial is a customer and the, the woman who is in charge of the program at Lincoln Financial, uh, she actually has this incredible hands-on approach where she has sat down shoulder to shoulder um, with the people in the program and, and watched them use Workfront and coach them personally uh, on the use of, uh, of Workfront. Just an incredible uh, level of focus on change management. So I think what we could have, what, what I would have, what I should have added to the book is just, is probably more examples of very practical, you know, taking change management out of the, the ether and, and bringing it really down to a practical, you know what, you could just do this one thing, you know, uh, if you just sat shoulder to shoulder, uh, yeah, I get that you got 200 users, but if you broke that down, how much time would that really take if you took a couple of minutes a day and sat down with a user? Just do that one thing. So, Dennis, that's a great question. I think we could have done a bit more uh, on practical tips on change management. Okay. Okay. That's always a, that's always a thorny, thorny problem, and different people have different approaches. Um, I'm a great, personally, I'm a great believer in uh, getting out in front of the people who are going to have to do things as early as mm-hmm. possible so that I can understand where they're at and, mm-hmm. you know, not just simply try and assume that I understand their pain but um, get a proper understanding of what their pain looks like so that if I'm going to make any sort of design changes, then at least I've got that in mind and can bring them along no. with me, you know. I will tell you one, the one thing that we have done as a company that's not in the book, but I'd be happy to share with you uh, from a visual standpoint. Um, and I, it's one of the things I'm most proud of that we did as a company. Um, we have a user group meeting. User group is, is a, undersells it. We have an annual customer conference. Okay. And two years ago, we put up what we thought was our customer journey. You know, kind of like, okay, from the time 
that you decide to be a Workfront customer through to great success, uh, what are the magic moments that you go through? Like, what are the big moments that you go through? So we, we laid that out on a, on a board in the, in the big hallway. And then, and then every customer that we came up, that came up, we gave them two red stickers and two green stickers. And we asked them to put the green stickers where you had a good experience with us and the red stickers where you had a bad experience with us. And it was so enlightening to be able to see, here's the journey, here's the magic moments, um, and here's where we just have not delivered a great experience and here's where we have a have delivered a great experience. So we had this massive you know, probably eight foot by 10 foot wall with thousands of these green and red sticky notes everywhere. And that, um, that impacted a lot of investments in turn. We actually announced an entire product because one of the pain points the customers told us is that we didn't do integration very well. So we built a product called Workfront Fusion, which is codeless uh, integration. And we did it because of that uh, chart. But where I was going with this in terms of managing change is, you know, I was at uh, I was at a big hospital in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago with the CMO and his entire team, and he's like, like, tell me what's going to happen. And we were able to lay up this chart and say, here are the two moments where you and your team are going to feel like you're hitting the wall because every one of our customers feel like they hit the wall in these two moments. And don't worry about it. Here's how we're going to lead you through these two moments. And here's about the time frame where these two moments happen. And here's about how long you'll be in these two moments. And so that's, that's been an awesome resource for us, uh, uh, you know, for customers. Because the fact of the matter is, The anticipation of fear is greater than fear. Oh, yeah. And so if in change management, we can reduce the anticipation of fear, um, you know, we can help people a lot. So pro- that's probably a longer story than you want, but no, no, uh, that's no, no, been no. helpful for us. Yeah, I, as you were describing that, I was thinking to myself, that's a very public way of finding out where you suck and where you don't. And uh, there's yeah, no, and, you and, can't uh, hide, we'll, can you? There's no way that you yeah. hide from any of that. <laughs> Alex, we're, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time. Yeah. Is it, this, this, yeah. uh, I don't know where the last 50, 55 minutes have gone, but um, I, I've learned a great deal. And um, I'd love to be able to speak with some of your customers at some point in time. Yeah. I imagine that for of some course. of them, this, this kind of work is pretty strategic and they might be a little, um, a little uh, hesitant about that. But um, Where, you know, I'm where do the, you live? I live, in, I live in Yorkshire in England, would you believe? <laughs> um. Well, uh, uh, we can easily connect you with some of our customers in, um, I know it's, a, I know it, it still is a scoot, but if you wanted to see them live, there's, you know, customers in London or, yep. um, or maybe even uh, if you wanted to, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this because I don't know the protocol, but um, uh, we do have a, a, we have our big customer meeting which is in dallas in may but we do a customer meeting in london uh in june and so uh, yeah I wanted yeah. to come to to that and talk to customers there Abs- absolutely I'd, I'd be delighted to i mean i'm i'm in you know despite the fact that we get branded or labeled as as media people and with all that that connotes um 
the thing that I really care about at the end of the day is customer success. That's what I really care yeah. about. So yeah. I'm, I'm more than delighted to, uh, to, get, uh, to get to talk to some of those people then. That, that would be great, Alex. Yep. And so, Shelby, I'll, I'll leave that to you uh, for you and Stephanie, how you want to, um, how you want to arrange that. But uh, um, I, I, the reason why I want you to do that is what, what is, what's so awesome about being able to work at Workfront, Dennis, is the very first story in the book about Allison Angeletta, um, the same woman that I was, I was sharing with you uh, from Lincoln Financial mm-hmm. at the end of the meeting. Um, what's this meant to you personally? And she said, you know what? This has been hard, but this has been the most important business experience I've had in my life. And so what we're seeing happen is our customers are getting promoted and that's fun. Yeah. And so I think, uh, I think there's lots of customers that would enjoy uh, talking to you and they'll be very frank and that's fine because there's all sorts of things we can get better at. Alex, that's been, I think at that point we'll, we'll, We'll put the drawbridge up for the time being. I'd love to revisit right. this at some point in the future, but this has been for me. It's been a fabulous conversation, and uh, I really appreciate you making the time because I know that guys like you are incredibly busy. Well, thanks. I know it's evening time, your time, so thanks a lot, and I hope you have a great night. Okay. <laughs>